Welcome to Zebra Talks, where people living with hypermobility syndromes hear their experiences reflected in conversations with guest experts and fellow zebras living their best bendy lives. I'm your host, Dr. Libby Hinesley, physical therapist and author of Yoga for Bendy People. The information and opinions shared on this podcast should not be taken as medical advice and are not a substitute for diagnosis and treatment by a qualified healthcare professional. And now, let's get started with today's Zebra Talk. Hey, Libby. Hey, hey, Mado. So we are going to talk about whether or not yoga is bad for bendy people today. That's right. That is the question. It's the question I get so, so often. Well, and obviously it's not always bad for bendy people. Otherwise we probably wouldn't be asking the question, but let me ask you this. Can it be bad for bendy people? Sure. But it could be bad for any number of people, but certainly, you know, bendy people have some unique characteristics and unique needs that we need to think about when we approach a yoga practice for them. And when practiced unwisely, you know, and in a way that really isn't supportive of their needs, then yes, it can lead to further injuries and aches and pains and, and stuff like that, no doubt about it. And I think that's why a lot of people have been told if they have a hypermobility syndrome, they've been told absolutely stay away from yoga. Yoga is bad for you. And a lot of people are really afraid of yoga because of that. So let's talk about some of those unique needs and characteristics that bendy people have that are specifically relevant in the context of a yoga practice. Yes. So when it comes to asana practice, there are a few main things. So some people with hypermobility syndromes are very prone to dislocations. In particular, in asana practice, it's going to be shoulder dislocation. Now, not everybody dislocates their joints. Uh, you know, who has hypermobility syndrome, but a lot of people do. And so really understanding what's the position that puts the shoulder at most risk for dislocation. That's one example. That's something we need to know if we have a history of shoulder dislocation, because I've certainly worked with a number of people who dislocate in yoga class. So that's one thing that would be kind of on the more extreme end range of of injury risk in yoga. Honestly, for a hypermobile person, joint dislocation is certainly uh, to be avoided if at all possible. But then on the more common end of things, people are more prone to strains and sprains in general. They're more prone to coming out of a yoga class with their sacroiliac joint a little bit um, painful with maybe some tendonitis and joint pain. And those are no, they're not huge life-threatening injuries by stretch, but they they can really turn into nagging chronic pain and it can be really you know, impactful for quality of life. And so the ways that we can mitigate that are, are pretty simple in yoga practice. We can stay away from passive stretching at end range. For example, that is the thing that is most likely to be irritating to a bendy body. Why that is, is actually a little bit mysterious. And we could talk about that, but it isn't all that well understood, but I can share some, some, you know, ideas about why that is. But so that's one thing we can really start to work with our range of motion, limit the range of motion and really work on qualities 
that the bendy body needs to cultivate like stability, like motor control and proprioception so that, you know, when we build those qualities, we are automatically going to be at less risk of injury. Right. So there's like, there's avoiding injury on one side of things, but then on the other side, it's just, okay, let's support this body in the ways that it really needs so that it is across the board more resilient. So you talked about passive stretching at end range. And I think one of the challenges is that a lot of bendy people crave the passive stretching at end range. Like that's what they love about yoga. So as a bendy person yourself, I'm curious, did you have this relationship to passive stretching at end range? Did you find that it was really satisfying and enjoyable for you? How, what was it like to give that up and what have you replaced that with? Yeah. Great questions. You are so right that bendy people love hanging out at end range, just mm, getting into those deep stretches. And the reason they love that, I think there's several reasons. One is interesting in that, so bendy people essentially have uh, different connective tissue that is more lax, or as I like to call it, it's a little bit floppier. And in that circumstance, their mechanoreceptors, the little nerve endings that sense mechanical information like stretch and pressure and movement and all those things, they have a harder time being stimulated. And their stimulation is what tells the brain about what's going on in the body. So for a bendy person, it's very hard to feel anything sometimes unless you go to end range, which is where, ah, now you feel all this sensation and now your brain knows that you're in a body and that's an important experience. It's called, you know, a feeling of embodiment. The problem is that so many of us as bendy people have a hard time sensing where our bodies are until we get to end range, which is also where we're at more risk for injury. So how do we fix that? Or how do we get around that is we start to learn how to sense more subtle sensations and sense them before we get to end range. But that's a huge shift in kind of our experience of asana and of stretching. And for me, I was absolutely the same way. I loved hanging out at end range for prolonged periods and just savoring all that sensory input. Ooh, I just loved it. And now I get all of that sensory input in a different way. And that's called self-massage. I present my sensory system with lots of intensity through self-massage using therapy balls so that I don't have to go to end range to feel my body. But, you know, that process wasn't that easy. It was uh, almost a bit of an identity shift. You know, I had to really come to terms with, okay, I'm not going to be that person doing that, those types of stretches in yoga class anymore. Right. And that was sad, you know, it was a loss of sorts. And I don't remember for how long I really felt that way, but I do remember feeling that way. It was a bit of an identity crisis. <laughs> and but what happened when I was able to make it is that I just felt better. You know, my body felt more integrated and I had less strains and sprains and aches and pains after asana practice. So, and I've really come to, I've come to love self-massage. I do it every day. 
on one part or the other of my body. And it is that need for sensory input that bendy people have. So that's a good way to understand this. If you're someone who's bendy and you're like, but I love stretching at end range. It just feels so good. It does feel good. And your, your body and your brain really do need that input, but it's going to be more beneficial to get it in a different way. Do you think that endorphins have something to do with it also? Because one thing that I have observed through many, many years of teaching and interacting with yoga practitioners and students is that people get a little bit addicted to the endorphin rush rush of deep stretching. And then they have a hard time separating the potential long-term benefits of yoga practice from this feeling that they have at the end of class. And then it becomes especially fraught when the feeling, the things that generate those feelings is different from the things that are going to present long-term benefits. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Beautifully said. I agree. I think a lot of people yoga practitioners are addicted to that endorphin rush that comes after basically after exercise and the fitness approach to yoga asana can yield that experience. And people, just as you said, often mistake that feeling, that temporary chemical feeling after practice with the longer term goals of yoga, which is to lead us, you know, more subtly into a place of well-being and contentment and peace and all of that, those things, connection. And yes, it is more fraught when achieving that feeling through asana practice is also what leads you to more injury and aches and pains. So one of the things that I really like to steer people toward, especially if they're hypermobile, is getting their fitness needs met in other ways and not through asana. I think asana has a lot to offer the bendy practitioner and all practitioners, but the bendy person's needs for fitness, I think can be better met elsewhere. And that those activities can really produce those same endorphins and those chemical and hormonal responses that are really beneficial, but also not injurious, especially when done, you know, with good guidance and all that. And I'm specifically thinking of strength training. And honestly, I think all yoga practitioners could benefit from looking for their fitness needs from somewhere else. Not that there has to be like this incredibly clear divide between fitness and and other activities. It's, It's mushier than that. But when we feel this pressure to get a workout in a yoga practice, it changes the quality of the practice. And it doesn't leave time for a lot of the stuff that yoga really excels at and is really where the, I think the deeper and those deeper long-term benefits of yoga lie in these experiences that there isn't time for in a class that's fitness focused. Mm-hmm. Not to say that you can't challenge yourself, not to say that that they might not overlap, but for me, it was about... 12 years ago that I, I started doing CrossFit. I was mm-hmm. a yoga teacher. I was a yoga practitioner and I, I was getting injured a lot. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I think I need more strength. And so mm-hmm. I started doing CrossFit, which 
exhausted me. <laughs> it was very difficult and exhausting. But what happened is all of a sudden, I felt zero pressure to get a workout during yoga. All of a sudden, yoga was like this magical, restorative, slow, and nurturing time that I hadn't had that relationship before. Like before, I would need to work really hard in asana before I felt okay relaxing in asana. But once I learned how to exhaust my body in other ways, then I could come to asana right from the get-go and and just be more present with it, mm-hmm. more present with the moment, which was just a different relationship. Yep. I had the very, very same experience. I treated my asana practice as a fitness workout for a long, long time. And when that changed, well, it was similar really to your experience. I started doing more strength training and and that came out of many years of chronic yoga related injury for sure. And then it just took the pressure off. And then the yoga practice doesn't have to be everything. It can just be the yoga practice. It can be more nurturing, more restorative. And for me now, it's a part of my self-care, but it, and I think it's, it's an enhancement to my fitness for sure, but I don't treat it as a fitness workout in any way. It serves me more in my body for that sensory input, the movement, the sensation of movement and the slowness and that proprioceptive accuracy that, you know, every practice helps to build when you slow down and really super pay attention motor control and steadiness, and mostly just integrating all of my parts so that I can be more centered and grounded and all of those really more interesting things from yoga's perspective. And I I agree. I think every yoga practitioner would likely benefit from that shift in what they expect out of their yoga practice, out of their asana practice, so that there can be more time for the other elements of yoga. And I think encouraging that shift, honestly, is for me a way to try to step away from the very stripped down, sterilized version of yoga that is so common, you know, in yoga culture in modern times, that is a problem from a cultural appropriation perspective in particular. Would you share a bit more of your story, how your relationship with yoga started And what clues you started to receive about how your relationship with yoga was maybe needed to change? Well, you would think I would get, would have gotten these clues much sooner than I did because I spent a long time being injured and being in more pain every time I practiced yoga, you know? And what was interesting about that, probably about 10 years, you know, every single day I was in pain. I had the chronic hamstring tendinopathy at, the, at my sitting bone. I had sacroiliac joint pain. I had hip pain. I had neck pain. I just was all over, you know, shoulder stuff. I sh- shredded my shoulders. I had all the classic yoga related injuries and the messaging around me at that time. And I was like really into Ashtanga yoga. I mean, I don't want to throw any particular style of yoga under the bus. The point is that for every practitioner, you know, the job is to figure out what is the type of practice that supports their specifics. And for me, there was a big mismatch for a long time. And, but the messaging around me was that, you know, the injuries that you have are just your teachers and they're part of the process of your body, just opening and changing. And there was this real 
sort of la la land language around me that looking back on it is insane. I can see that it's totally nutso. And unfortunately, it's really common in yoga culture, I think, still. But so there was this uh, this way of thinking about injuries as though they were just like part of your deepening of your practice and just really weird stuff. Okay. And that the answer was just to do more, just keep doing more, keep opening, 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 opening. Like that was the whole emphasis. And so I think that prevented me from really understanding, oh, my injuries are actually, yes, important information, but they're not trying to tell me what these people are suggesting. They're actually telling me, oh, the way you're practicing isn't working for you because yoga is not supposed to injure you, right? It's not what it wants for you. Yoga is not interested in you getting injured or performing any certain way or anything. You know, it really wants you to learn about yourself. And the way we learn about ourselves is that we study our response to practice and we adjust accordingly so that yoga becomes supportive. And I just didn't have anyone really sending me those messages at that time. One thing that I think is so difficult about bringing this practice into Western capitalist culture is that we cannot seem to get away from performance and achievement. Mm -hmm. That it's really difficult for us to wrap our brain around the value of doing anything that doesn't have a product at the end. Like it doesn't have something you can point to and say, here's my achievement. Mm -hmm. It's true. And I really, I felt that so strongly. I remember feeling like, oh, I know there's more to this yoga practice. And I really wish I had time to explore that, but I really need to check off this workout off of my to-do list, you know? And there was always this sidebar in my awareness. Like, I know there's more to this. I know there's more to this, you know, but I just never could get myself to go there. I don't know why I think that what you're talking about is really strong And our drive for achievement is just, is hard to override, but that's what you have to do so that yoga practice gets to be, it's not even on your to-do list. It's like, it's a totally different thing. It isn't a performance. It isn't for anyone else. It's not, you know, to earn your badge as like a yoga teacher or whatever it is. It's very hard to get out of that. I really get it because I, I felt that for a long time. And I'm really grateful that I don't feel that way now, that yoga is really different for me now. And it serves me much, much better. And it, I think it helps me in my life much, much better. Helps me be, you know, the person that as uh, how should I say it? it helps me be as aligned with my values as I can be, you know, in my behavior in the world. And that's really an, of interest to yoga. One of the messages that I received a lot and that I think is so very damaging. And I, I do believe it's becoming less prevalent, but I know it's also still out there is the conflation between some physical achievement or some physical opening and spiritual progress mm-hmm. that exactly. you can <laughs> measure your spiritual progress by your physical progress. Mm-hmm. And once I learned about anatomy and I learned about how first we you have bone structure and then you have connective tissue structure. And so your genetics are, they determine, I don't know, something like 80 or 90% of your range of motion. So how on earth 
could that possibly have anything to do with your spiritual progress? If you are going to hit up bone against bone at a certain point and no more physical progress is possible without dislocation, Mm -hmm. I just basically feel like there has been zero actual correlation between the... That's right. There, there is there is indeed zero actual correlation between those things, but you're right. It gets so mixed up. And I, I guess that's maybe just a function of our maybe cultural obsession with physical stuff, you know, with physical aesthetic stuff. And it gets, you know, in, in ter- as far as spiritual traditions go, I see that being mixed up in it a lot, you know, in the same way that even our ideas of subtle anatomy get mixed up with the actual body, you know, and like, we're supposed to find this energy center in this specific physical location. I think that's, that's a mix up right there. And so I think it comes up in a lot of different ways, but absolutely, you know, the, someone's ability to do a challenging yoga posture is absolutely irrelevant to anything that yoga actually cares about. It is zero relevance whatsoever. And I, I wish that more people could understand that (laughs) and that someone's spiritual kind of journey is totally personal and individual. And, uh, the tools of yoga are simply tools to help us move in that direction. But if we have a very physically able body, then we can use the tools of asana in a certain way. If we have a less physically able body, we're going to use the tools of asana in a different way. If we have a body that needs to be in a wheelchair, we're going to use the tools of asana in a very different way. And maybe we're not going to use the tool of asana so much, right? Depending on our physical abilities. So that's, that's just how it is. That's why yoga gives us a lot of different tools. Asana is just one, but I do think that really is at the crux of this question. Well, is, is yoga bad for bendy people or well, isn't yoga bad for bendy people? And in fact, that's often how I hear it. Isn't yoga bad for bendy people? Well, it depends on what you mean by yoga. If what you mean by yoga is this idea we've been talking about, that's, that's really a misrepresentation of yoga that says being good at yoga means doing splits and wrapping your feet around your head and all this stuff then yes, that can be bad for bendy people, but that's not what yoga is. So it really, the question helps us get clear about, well, what is yoga anyway? And then we can use the tools of yoga to support any practitioner wherever they are in their physical abilities and otherwise, you know, and that can change over time. And this, that goes for the bendy people as well. And because among people with hypermobility, syndromes, there's a wide range of physical ability levels. Some are going to be in wheelchairs. Some people dislocate their joints every single day. And those people are going to need a, you know, a certain approach to asana practice than someone who doesn't dislocate, but maybe they have chronic tendonitis that flare up all the time. If they do too much passive stretching at end range, something like that, right? There's a whole spectrum, but there are certain concepts that we can apply at any step along the way. Something you said earlier made me think about the visible versus the invisible where asana, I think we're often drawn to it because it makes yoga visible. Mm -hmm. And then we want to apply meaning to that visibility Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it's uncomfortable for us as extremely visually oriented animals. Did you know that 50% of our brain is devoted to vision? 
It's amazing. 50%. Yeah. So we, we are very drawn to things we can see, but yoga is invisible. Mm-hmm. Yoga practice is invisible and you cannot look at somebody and know what their practice is like. Yep. It's totally true. You're right. And I have people ask me all the time, well, isn't it okay? Like, I like the challenge of challenging postures. Isn't that okay? Isn't it okay to get a workout? Of course, it's okay to get a workout is what I say, but it isn't what yoga cares about. So stop mixing that up with yoga's goals. I love working out. I love, I'm a big supporter of exercise and fitness and workouts and all of that. But I, I am not a fan of mixing up what yoga is about with all these other notions. It's not that I don't or wouldn't enjoy an asana practice that it that has challenge incorporated into it, but it has to be the right type of challenge for me, the right type of challenge for my body. And it has to incorporate a lot of space for me to be in my body. So it's not like this kind of the type of challenge that I do at the gym, which like my brain is like, I hate this. When is this going to be over? <laughs> like, you know, but that's good for me to do sometimes, but I'm not going to do that during my asana practice. Mm-hmm. So one thing that we've touched on a little bit, but I think we could go into a little more depth is the issue of collagen. Mm-hmm. Cause this is really a lot of what defines a bendy person. Am I, am I on the right track here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are several factors are going to influence how much range of motion someone demonstrates when they move their body. And one of those things is just bone structure, bone shape. You know, we have similar bone shapes for sure among human bodies, but there's slight variations and angles and this and that. So that's one thing. And then there's also muscle tone, which is, you know, the nervous system is in charge of muscle tone. And you can have really hypotonic muscles, which are, you know, not very much tone or really hypertonic, which are like really all contracted all the time. And so that's going to play a role in how much range of motion we demonstrate. But the hypermobility stuff is really about what's going on at the joints and specifically the joint capsules that are made of collagen largely and the ligaments that support all the joints. Those are made largely of collagen and the tendons that connect the muscle across joints and to bones. Those are all made of collagen stuff. We'll call them collagenous connective tissues and fascia would fit into that umbrella as well. Collagenous connective tissue, how lax is it? How floppy is it? How much give is there in those collagen fibers that make up that tissue? That's a big contributing factor to how um, mobile your joints are, how much range of motion is available at your joints. And that is a function of your genetics. So some people have like collagen fibers that are like steel cables. In fact, that is what collagen really wants to be. It wants to be like a steel cable. It is the glue that holds the body together. We don't want it to be all floppy and melty. It's holding our skin on, you know, it's, it's, you know, keeping us from falling apart. So those connective tissues are like so strong. They are the sturdiest material on purpose because they're made of collagen and its job is to resist tensile forces, which are stretch forces, which are pulling apart forces. And so when we go to do a big, long stretch, especially if we're targeting our connective tissues, you know, they take a long time to give. That's why in 
approaches to stretching that target connective tissue you're holding for a long time, three or five minutes or more to induce a, a viscoelastic response in those collagenous connective tissues, which means they start to melt and spread out and change shape. That's called tissue deformation. They change shape. And in a bendy person, they change shape more easily. It doesn't take so long. And, you know, it doesn't take as much tug and those collagen fibers just aren't as taut. They aren't as much like a steel cable. So they, they melt and they change shape easily, more easily. And then they take longer to recoil because normal connective tissue recoils back to its original starting point, unless there's been a plastic change, which is tissue failure or tissue damage and where it never, it can't ever get back. Okay. So bendy people are going to be at more risk for that to happen, but even just a response to stretching in a bendy person is more deformation, quicker deformation and slower recoil. So in that moment, like after a prolonged passive stretch at end range, where we've really targeted connective tissue after that stretch, we have a longer period of time of relative instability because our passive tissues are flopped out there, you know, they're that we call it tissue creep. I know I'm using a lot of terminology here, but hopefully people are following it, but they're, they're flopped out. They're creeped out They're They've melted and they stay that way for longer. And in that zone of time, our active structures, our muscles have to pick up the slack from a stability standpoint. And that's always what they're having to do. That's why the bendy person feels like their muscles are tight all the time. It's because they are, they're contracting all the time. There's low grade chronic muscle contraction, just literally to hold the body together because those collagenous connective tissues who are supposed to be providing passive support, they just aren't as supportive. This is awesome. I think that you've just explained that very, very clearly. And I know you, you are using terminology but you're explaining all of the terminology, which is exactly what you do so well in your book. Do you want to say a little bit about the book and where listeners can find it? Sure. Yeah. It's called Yoga for Bendy People. You can find out and follow along by um, following me on Instagram, Libby Hinesley PT, or going to my website, LibbyHinesley.com. But so the book basically it has a couple parts. The first part explains hypermobility explains about connective tissue, like the stuff we were just talking about. There's a whole chapter called connective tissue, nitty gritty. And we get into all of that. And then it goes into, okay, what are the principles of asana practice that can best support bendy people? But, you know, several different aspects. And those are concepts we can bring into any style of asana practice to at, at any physical ability level and all that. And then the last part is, okay, what about all those other pieces of yoga besides asana? So what are the unique needs of bendy people from a nervous system regulation standpoint and a mental clarity and focus standpoint, and also from a standpoint of kind of learning about their own condition and coming to a place of acceptance about the challenges that are inherent in for anyone who has a hypermobility disorder or syndrome. It's way more than bendiness in the body. It's way more than joints that move more than normal. It has a whole host of, of ramifications across, you know, pretty much every system of the body. And so I talk in the book about that and about how yoga offers us tools there too, with how to come to a place of acceptance especially when we think about the yamas and the niyamas and self-care and that type of thing. So the book covers all of those bases. 
And I think this is important information for anyone who teaches yoga, but in particular for bendy people who might, you know, whether they teach yoga or not, maybe they want to practice yoga or they already practice yoga or they're, they're interested, but someone's told them that yoga is bad for bendy people and they want to find out how it can be actually good for bendy people. That's who the book is for all those people. 